Welcome everybody to the nightclub interview series where my guest today is the esteemed philosopher David Loy. But before we get started, as usual, a few housekeeping items. My latest book, Dreams of Light, was published just a few weeks ago. So in order to um, kind of unpack that and fold that, we're starting a book study group, September 22nd. The link will be attached at the end of this talk. And also, I'm doing a program for the Open Center in New York City on Bardo's and Everyday Life. That link will also be attached. So I wanted to share my incredible enthusiasm for the upcoming interview with David Loy. He's a remarkable individual. He's written a number of books, and we focus principally on his really outstanding teachings on non-duality. What exactly is non-duality? This term is tossed around so casually, but what does it really mean? What is the role of meditation in uncovering a non-dualistic world? And then what are the things that we don't see? How do we continue to keep ourselves in the dark? What are our blind spots as meditators around non-duality altogether? We have a wide-ranging conversation about things like spiritual reductionism, how we can reduce many of the world's complexities and the fundamental, relatively simple spiritual tenets. How does the sense of lack drive everything that we do? And then what I so appreciate about David is the ability to turn to really practical concerns. All the issues that are facing the world today, ecological devastation, social upheaval, and political discord. So we talk about that in some detail. And then we get to really explore so many of the other nuances that this remarkable thinker brings. So I'm very excited to spend this next hour and 45 minutes with David Loy and uh, basking in the glow of his own wisdom. Welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here. I am particularly excited about my guest today my new dear friend, David Loy. And as usual, I'm going to start with a brief, somewhat official formal bio of this remarkable individual. And then um, as you will discover, there is no shortage of amazing topics we're going to be diving into. So David Robert Loy is a professor, writer, and Zen teacher in the Zambo Zen tradition of Japanese Buddhism. He's a prolific author whose essays and books have been translated into many languages. His articles appear regularly in Buddhist magazines such as Tricycle, Lion's Roar, and Buddha Dharma, as well as a variety of scholarly journals. David lectures nationally and internationally on various topics, focusing primarily on the encounter between Buddhism and modernity, what, can, what each can learn from the other. He is especially concerned about social and ecological issues. So David, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with us. I have been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. Well, thank you, Andrew, for this invitation. And I'm, I'm pleased that we finally met. And as you said, I think we won't run out of things to talk about. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's, there's a number of things I want to just say at the outset before we jump in. Um, when I have uh, such a rare opportunity to converse with not just a scholar of your subtlety and depth and scope, but I think even more importantly for me, David, is the, this really elegant juxtaposition of scholar practitioner that you, you're a um, longtime student of the Zen tradition, that you 
walk the talk, so to speak, or in this case, sit the talk. And, <laughs> and therefore, you bring so much more than um, just a mere academic lens to this. And, and the other thing that's so inspiring to me is, and maybe we can come back to this and close it at the end, is your uh, extraordinary interest in activism, um, in writing around and about the ecological situation and how as bodhisattvas these days, we are really um, eco-sattvas. And so I want to come back <laughs> to that topic, David, but mm -hmm. with your permission, this is where I want to go with you because again, you, you just have such a unique lens on the things that I have so much passion for these days. And I want to start with, with a discussion that is very near and dear to my heart because as I age, I find myself increasingly more interested in uh, what the Tibetans refer to as the nintig, the heart essence of the teachings. Mm. And mm -hmm. I, I find um, in my practice and study that that heart essence is in fact the exploration of non-duality. And I have a particular passion for it because in the Bardo teachings of Tibetan Buddhism, um, which I now really look at as kind of wrathful form of liberation, <laughs> that um, we're heading towards this hard essence. We're, we're actually heading towards non-duality. And in a very real way, then the entire path is this kind of death in slow motion. And so <clears throat> I, I would love to explore this topic with you because you write about it with such elegance um, and you, you bring such a unique perspective to it. So why don't we start for our listeners with what is non-duality? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's such a common, you know, it's common parlance. We toss it around so flippantly. It's in many circles synonymous with awakening, synonymous with enlightenment. And I'd be curious to see if that's resonant with you. Mm. But what is your understanding, both um, experientially and doctrinally, of this term that's so flippantly used? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think a lot of the problem with the term is that it means too many different things according to context and uh, it's not always clear which which thing which meaning is referred to i mean in its essence right i mean non-duality literally means not to and it usually involves the the claim that two things that we have been understanding as separate from each other are in fact interdependent and perhaps even sort of two sides of the same coin. Uh, so whenever we hear or read the term non-duality, it's really important to, to ask immediately uh, what duality is being denied here? Um, because without that sense, it, it, it's going to be very confusing. Um, so I... I'm interested in a number of different uh, types of non-duality. I mean, one of them is what you might simply call uh, non-dual thinking or uh, the, a, a critique of bipolar thinking in the sense that two concepts we think of as separate are in fact two sides of the same thing, as I said. For example, good and evil, I think is a very, is, is a very good example there. Um, we don't really know the meaning of good until we know what's being denied, what is not good, what is evil, and vice versa. So um, this plays out not only conceptually, but also in, 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 in terms of how we actually live, that often 
the way that we feel good about ourselves is that we are discriminating or attacking or in some way uh, defending ourselves against what we understand to be evil, right? So to be good is to be not evil. To be evil is to be not good. And, and it's interesting how that plays out historically, how, for example, say in Christianity, if God is all good, well, you've got to sort of invent or create or find an evil, which is represented by, by Satan or, or Lucifer. Um, and uh, like, likewise, historically, if you think about the history of Europe, it's, it's fascinating to see how this has sadly involved persecution of, of witches and heretics and, and so forth. So, so that's one example. And, we, you know, we could spend quite a bit of time going into interesting versions of that. Um, but I suppose the, the, the type of non-duality that is of most interest to me is, is the one between subject and object or yes. self and other. In other words, our normal way of experiencing the world is that I have this sense of self that's separate from the world, the environment that I'm in. Uh, and of course, the, the fascinating claim of so many of the, of what I would call non-dualist traditions, because I would include not only Buddhism, especially Mahayana, but also something like Taoism or Vedanta, this, this fascinating claim that in fact, the sense of separation between inside and outside, between subject and other is in fact a, a delusion or at least a construct that becomes quite problematical. And I think that's a, that pings on some really important points for me, David, and that's this idea of what you just ended with, that in fact, um, duality is a construct and, and in, in, quite literally by definition, non-duality is negation, right? It's, it's right, implies, not to. Right. Yes, exactly. It, it implies a process of deconstruction. So what, what is it that's actually being deconstructed? I mean, what, uh, obviously these are avenues that, that can take us down all kinds of routes. But if we're looking at neg um, negation, we're looking at deconstruction, what fundamentally is being negated and, and deconstructed here? <laughs> well, what's being negated is the duality. The claim of the non-dualist traditions is that there's a non-dual way to experience the world so that we don't have this sense of separation between inside and outside, between subject and object. And of course, the really interesting thing is that these traditions offer us practices, usually some type of meditation that can help us do that. It's not enough simply to understand something like this claim theoretically or intellectually that uh, it, it's important to actually deconstruct the way we're experiencing the world and ourselves in the world. Yeah, and this, has, you know, this really ties into um, kind of corollary topic that I think we can start at this point that, you know, according to the non-dual traditions, as I've come to understand them, you know, non-duality is the natural state. And if that is in fact the case, and this of course is why, uh, parenthetically, why when we die according to the Tibetan Buddhist approach, we're simply returning to this natural state of non-duality. So within this kind of context, David, where did the non-dual legacy come from? How, how did we go so far astray? Well, let, let me start by flagging that term natural. Uh, because certainly in the in the Tibetan tradition, as in many others, it's it's a value laden term, right? It's not uh -huh. it's not just a descriptive one, but you know we're saying natural is good, 
unnatural is is not good. I mean, similar to what organic or, or organic foods are better than processed ones or or something like that. Uh, and, and the reason I want to flag it is that when I look at something like evolutionary psychology, it's not at all clear to me that that natural. I mean natural can involve problematic things as well. I mean, the Buddha in one of his first sermons talked about the uh, the world being on fire with the three poisons, greedy, will, delusion. And my understanding of something like evolutionary psychology is there's a sense in which those are actually natural. They are built into us genetically because they helped our species uh, reproduce and, and, and not only survive and thrive. So... I just wanted to flag that that yeah. sense of, of naturalness that it's not, as I understand it, it's not, you know, always the case that our goal should simply be to return to the natural state. I yeah, guess there are certain contexts in which I would want to sort of raise questions about that. I think that's yeah. really great, David, and I appreciate the nuance here because when when we start referring to topics of such subtlety then the, uh, the way we use our language, um, the way words are engaged becomes somewhat important. And I think perhaps what might be worth throwing into the mix at the outset here is that this is where, at least in my opinion, we have to make this very critical distinction between relative and absolute truth. Um, and perhaps, mm, what, exactly. perhaps, perhaps what you're asserting, especially from the evolutionary psychology point of view, is really more relativistic. It's from the, from the relative point of truth, because on one level, you know, if we equate, and whether this equation is is uh, valid or not, I'd like to hear what you think about this. If we equate non-duality with emptiness, then on one level, emptiness does not evolve. So it, it, it really doesn't, um, it's not amenable to the tenets of evolutionary theory. Um, form evolves, and that's more relative truth. So does that land, does that land with you? Does that make sense? Yes, yes. I guess what I would, what, what would add to it is, if if we're talking about, absolute and relative in terms of, of sort of two ways of experiencing ourselves in the world, two ways of experiencing the world. So the, the phenomenal or the relative would be our normal way of understanding uh, ourselves. And then the essential would be more what we're talking about, the, the non-dual way of experiencing. Uh, but, but I think it's interesting that, you know, within Buddhism, that, that the goal would not simply to be to become aware of the non-dual, but that there are these two alternative ways of experiencing, and what's important is to be able to sort of shift from one to the other according to the context. I mean, there are times if I'm dealing with depositing a check in the bank or, or you know, certain types of, um, you know, responsibilities in, in the world, uh, then the relative way of experiencing might be the appropriate way to go. So, in other words, what I'm saying is, as I understand Buddhism, we start from this relative understanding, we open up and become aware of this absolute or non-dual or emptiness uh, way of experiencing. And I think the ultimate goal, you could say, is realizing both and, yeah. and interfusing both, as it were. Which yeah, is kind well, of a lifelong challenge, I think. Isn't it? Really isn't never it? comes yeah. to an end. Yeah. To develop to develop that fluidity of identity. But I mean, really, in this hmm. regard, I think I also feel it's important to throw into the mix that you know, the absolute 
can transcend but include the relative, but the mm. relative cannot transcend but include the absolute. And so there, there does mm. seem to be, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, some type of, um, I mean, supremacy is a delicate word these days, but some type of greater <laughs> truth, some mm. type of greater truth to the absolute because one can contain sure. the form and the other can't. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I, so I'd agree with that. And so, so, so getting back to your question, go exactly, ahead. exactly. That's why I wanted to return. So, who can we dig up and hang? I mean, Aristotle, <laughs> Aristotle, Plato. I mean, who, who are, who are, you know, we live in, we live in Aristotle's world. How, how much are we influenced by our Greek intellectual heritage, unknowingly? Well, I mean, I would, I would go back a lot further than Aristotle to just our evolutionary heritage, the way of the way of biology. I mean, I, I think that uh, you could understand the evolution of life as involving a certain kind of duality. There's a sense in which, you know, life forms develop out of and as a manifestation or expression of a certain kinds of environment. But insofar as life wants to preserve and reproduce itself, yeah. we could ask, is, is there some sense of separation and duality built in that, that organisms will do what they have to in order to do that? But in terms of, um, in terms of, of, of human beings, you know, this, this very odd and special species that we are, I, I think a lot of the sense of duality has to do with language and, and mm. the role that language plays in our way of what understanding or, or objectifying ourselves in the world and, uh, and creating that, that sense of separation between inside and out. Yeah, I mean, our language is, is I've reflected this on a great deal, and as you know, many very sophisticated philosophers have, have done mm. the same, that we, right. that, you know, we, we think, think, largely because of nouns. We, we live in a wor world of subject um, and object, um, mm -hmm. nouns and verbs. And so right. can you right. say a little bit more about that? Because this, this begs and in, leads into the next question that I wanted to pose to you, and that is how is it that we unconsciously in my language, continue to practice not, uh, duality because I, I, don't, I don't think it's just this one big kind of samsaric bang that we're still kind of recovering from. I, I, I personally believe that we unwittingly um, practice, meditate on duality, become increasingly familiar with it all the time. And I think mm, one of the ways we do it's that a process. is yeah. Yeah, we, we fall victim to things like language. So say a little bit more about that because I, I sure, think this sure. is a fiendishly important topic. No, I, I agree completely there, and I like the way that you picked up on the the duality between noun and verb, or between subject and predicate. I mean, I think that 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 has a lot to do with it. Uh, and as as you know, that's sort of at the foundation of all the Indo-European languages. Interestingly, not so much in something like Chinese or or Japanese, but the result of that is that we do tend to see the world. As, as a collection of things that then do things, right? This, that anytime there's a process, there has to be a thing that's doing it. Um, um, but getting back to your basic question there, what I find fa most fascinating about this issue is, is that the way it helps me understand um, a, a kind of difference that I detect between what I was learning from my Zen master and what I pick up when I'm reading, say, the Pali Canon. Because in the Pali Canon, as you know, the Buddha summarizes his teachings into the Four Noble Truths, right? Dukkha, suffering in the broad sense, 
and then the uh, the cause of dukkha is desire or maybe better craving uh, but interestingly my zen teacher i don't believe he ever referred to the four noble truths and he certainly didn't talk about the problem as craving rather the problem was understood to be concepts conceptualizing mm. Uh, and so what's going on here? What is the fundamental problem? Is it craving? Is it conceptualizing? And, and as, as I see it, I think that actually there, there are two sides of the same thing. And the way that we can understand that is by, by, by looking at, at language, which, which we are now, that, that when we grow up and learn the language, it, it's not just a way of communicating with each other, but it's actually how we structure, how we construct the world, right? Yeah. So if I look around the kitchen, I see a, a collection of what, cups and saucers and, and pans and, and, and so forth. Um, but the, the really interesting thing about that is that calling something a cup, it, it, it's not just a, a proper name, it's a concept. By mm -hmm. identifying it as a cup, I know what it's for. And, and I think that's the important thing. Functions, ways of relating to the world are built into the way that we divide up the world with language. And because of that, then that's how we are uh, enabled to fulfill our desires or try to fulfill our, our cravings. I guess what I'm trying to point out here is that there, there are three things going on. There's mm -hmm. kind of triumvirate that are part of the same process. There's the language which divides up the world in terms of things that are actually processes. And these enable us to try to de, uh, resolve, uh, um, satisfy our cravings. And I think that is a pretty good description of the phenomenal world. This is how we normally experience the world. Psychologists have realized that, you know, in, in daily life, we're actually not paying all that much attention to something like a cup, just enough perceptual input to identify it as a cup. And then I know what it's for. And then I know how to use it when the time is appropriate. So I think putting all that together is, in fact, uh, as I said, a pretty good description of the way that we normally experience the world, which is very much dualistic. By separating, by identifying something, say, as a cup, and then knowing that it's available to serve a particular kind of function, that everything becomes a means to some other end, I think that's kind of the, the primary sort of dualistic move that makes us feel separate from it. Yeah, no, that's really terrific. And, and, and to even backpedal just a little bit to put an exclamation point on some of what you said that, you know, I, I think you would definitely agree that in a very real level, there, there are no nouns in reality. Mm, uh, there really exactly. are only just verbs. And, and I was thinking here of how mm. in, in the Jewish tradition, the, you know, the name for, for their God is uh, unnameable. It's actually unpronounceable mm. by design mm. that, that it, you want to trip the, the linguistic conceptual mind in, into keeping out. It's like a way to frame mm -hmm. this way. And, and the other way to like, I think about this, David, is that, you know, I'm very interested in um, this notion of near enemies and near friends, which is mm -hmm. you know, kind of central to the alchemical tradition and also the tantric tradition. And, and for me here, it, it kind of points to the, the near enemy of articulation, that the near enemy of articulation is in fact reification. Mm -hmm. that we, we very easily slide 
um, when the, the kind of the clarity, the articulate quality of the mind starts to discriminate in the kind of pejorative sense. And then we freeze frame. We, we basically freeze mm -hmm. everything and therefore we get stuck at the level of the map. And so when you're talking about this, another way to say it really is we, we end up uh, living in the map and not in the ter territory. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. eat the menu instead of the meal. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then we wonder why we're not being nourished. I, I, I actually think this is the <laughs> basis of the obesity epidemic, that we're, mm -hmm. that we're eating the wrong thing, uh, inauthentic consumerism, if you will. And so mm -hmm. to me, this, you know, when I first came across this, I, I almost found it somewhat patronizing because it, it seemed, can it really be this kind of obvious and simple? You know, it really can language have this kind of impact? And, and the more I reflect on it and the more, uh, to return to this earlier um, narrative, the more I deconstruct, just like you're saying, the more I realize that language is absolutely at the core of the way we fragment the world and then live in that fragmentation. Mm. Mm. I, I, I'm struck also, uh, I mean, I just think of Yogacara and, and really the fundamental claim there. I mean, it's not a subjective idealism as we understand it in the West, although it's often taken that way. But, but the fundamental claim is, is something about the way we grasp, right? That grasping, and we do that with language, right? We, we grasp, I, I see it. We, we grasp in a way with the eyes as well. I, I see something as, as a cup, and the claim of Yogacara is that act of grasping is what reifies both the objective, objectively existing external cup and the sense of a separate self, a subject that is doing the grasping. And so that's, that's the two sides of the fundamental move and why something like meditation is so important, because it's learning to perceive in a way that, that doesn't grasp. And, in that fashion. Yeah, and you, and you hit on something here again, uh, an absolute segue into what I wanted to transition towards when you talk about grasping with the eyes. I, I think um, one of the most interesting things you write about is the um, kind of the centrality of vision and how it in a certain way predisposes us towards a dualistic view. And, and I, I have a quote here that I wanted to share with you, David, from, this is a lovely book, uh, Learning to Walk in the Dark by Barbara Brown Taylor. I don't know if you know her or know this work. She's a Christian theologian. I don't. Yeah, just a beautiful writer. And, and so she's talking a little bit here about visions. And she's quoting a, a French writer and says here, the problem, this is her, the problem with seeing the regular way is that sight naturally prefers outer appearances. It attends to the surface of things, which it makes it an essentially superficial sense. We let our eyes skid over trees, furniture, traffic, faces, too often mistaking sight for perception, which is easy to do when our eyes work so well to help us orient ourselves in space. And then she has, there's one other thing here I wanted to share with you because I just found it so elegant. Yeah, here it is. It makes me wonder how seeing has made me blind <laughs> by giving me cheap confidence that one quick glance at things can tell me how they really are. I, I thought that was just beautiful. So yes. talk a little bit more about it. And that, the reason I'm riffing on this, David, from my end is, you know, within the context of, of the so-called nocturnal meditations, I riff quite a bit on... Um, uh, wake centricity, 
site-centricity, photocentricity, all in the service of egocentricity. And so I'm really interested in the powers of vision, um, how, how we're dominated by sense, uh, the sense of sight, how literally you know, a third of our brain processing power is devoted to processing visual data. Mm-hmm. And also interesting to throw this back into the mix, David, that um, you know, according to the kind of ritualized phenomenology of the Buddhist descent into death, when the senses dissolve, they go from gross to subtle, from most dualistic to non-dualistic. And, and therefore, as it says, even in the Heart Sutra, you know, the first sense to, to dissolve is mm. the most dualistic one. No, no eyes, no eye, yeah. no ear, no nose. And so we're actually right. heading towards non-duality. Right. So let's talk about this because I think, again, what I'm trying to convey to my listeners is all the kind of forces of the dark side and, and how, again, we unwittingly, unconsciously, non-lucidly practice duality. And one way is, is kind of capitulating to the supremacy and, and the power of our vision. So share some of what you've written and talked about that, because I found it just riveting when I came across these teachings. Well, well the first thing I want to say is just to reinforce something I said a bit earlier, how uh, psychologists who investigate perception, you know, emphasize that we're actually not really looking that closely most of the time. There's just enough visual input to identify. Somehow it, 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 it touches, it, it identifies, it enables us to, to label the particular thing. And then having done that on, on a normal, in a normal sort of process, we don't really pay that much attention. I guess what I'm trying to emphasize here is we, we think we see the visual world. In fact, what we're experiencing is, is very much a, a, a construct, a yeah. construct built not only out of what the eyes see, but what the mind thinks and the way that learning language and growing up with language basically mixes them in a way that we're not aware of unless we do something like engage on, on a meditative path. Yeah. Uh, get, getting back to your, your question about vision. I mean, um, it's fascinating that when we think about non-duality, vision is in some ways the most challenging of the senses. Um, If you compare it with something like, say, hearing, I mean, we can normally make a distinction between, say, me or I as the one who is hearing an objective sound, but, but it doesn't seem tripartite in the same way that in, in the case of vision, there's a me, there's a perception of a separate thing, that there's a thing separate from the perception of it. So again, that's a way of saying that the, that the vision is, is especially challenging and problematic. Um, but also in, in evolutionary terms too, uh, when we first stood upright, I think that is what sort of encouraged the development of vision, because as long as we were close to the ground, like say uh, a dog or or a wolf, sound was actually more important, and often the sense of smell as well. But once we stood up in our hind legs, you know, it, it wasn't just a matter of sort of liberating the uh, the forepaws to become hands, but also there, there was this evolution and, and readjustment of how the brain works to to focus a lot more on, on the visual side of it. Yeah, you, I wanted to share and have you run a little commentary on, on this line from your beautiful book on non-duality, David, where, where you, you, you share this quotation, only sight, therefore, provides the sensual basis on which the mind may conceive the idea of the eternal 
that mm. which never changes and is always mm. present. This, mm. I think, is, is incredibly important because it's, it's part of what I playfully refer to as the unholy trinity of, of seeing things, mistaking things to be solid, lasting, mm. and independent. And you, you, mm -hmm, you, you mm -hmm. have a slightly different phraseology in your book, but when I read it, I said, oh my gosh, he's saying the same thing here. Mm. That, that is, it, it, again, it's sight, the, the, right. the sight-centric approach that traps us um, in this most dualistic frame. So can you say a little mm -hmm. bit more about that? Well, that wraps it up for today, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. If you did enjoy this episode, be sure to check out all the other offerings on my club. And until next time, stay healthy and pleasant dreams.